0: Hey, good evening. Um, my name's Travis. If I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors here, and I uh, I haven't made it to a... <laughs> I feel bad, guilty saying this. I haven't made it to a Wednesday night in some time because usually I'm running around grabbing my daughters on Wednesday nights. But um, it's good to be with you. Um, open up your Bibles, Gospel of John. We're starting a new series tonight on the topic of marriage, and it will cover more than just marriage, but marriage will be uh, probably one of the main themes of it, and I, as I was prepping for this, I looked on Amazon, and there's over 100,000 books for sale on the topic of marriage, over 27,000 books on dating, over 80,000 books on sex, which is quite impressive. Um, LAUGHTER and I have read several of the books on marriage, and i got to tell you, they're about as deep as a Hallmark card, many of them. Um, a lot of them are about as deep as a Hallmark card. So there's a lot of books that are written on marriage, but there's one book that stands above all the other books written on marriage, and that's the Scriptures. And so what we're going to do, the, deep, the Scriptures give you a much deeper, much more robust view of marriage, a vision for marriage that should astound us when we slow down enough to consider it. And so what we'll do over the next eight weeks is we'll look at what God says regarding marriage, the joining of two lives. We'll look at what God says about sex, because contrary to what our culture says, God created sex, which means we don't have a right to jimmy-rig it. We'll see what God says about singleness, and we'll see what God says about the purpose of marriage, because marriage, again, is God's idea. He's the one who created it and blessed it, and therefore um, what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is absolutely critical. And unfortunately, I would bet, and I don't think I'm speaking on a turn, a great deal of people enter into marriage without thinking a whole lot about marriage. They don't have the foggiest idea of what they're doing. A, a great, is that not true of you? When you entered into marriage, did you know what you were doing? The, the, the preacher will ask you, he'll tell you all these things, and then he says, if you agree, say, I do. And you're lying because you have no idea what you're talking about. It's a promise of a future love that you're saying, I agree to these things even though I know nothing about what I'm agreeing to. It's a tricky little balance, and yet we all play the song, we play the dance, we do the deal. Most of us get our ideas about marriage from Father the Bride, if you're from a certain generation, or Disney movies. That has shaped, for the vast majority of Americans, that has shaped their idea of marriage. We'll talk about what, what that leads to, uh, I think, next week. But for the great many of us, that's informed our view of marriage and our understanding of marriage more than what the Scriptures say. Uh, and that has huge ramifications on every area of your life. And what's interesting about that is you don't approach any other area of life the way that you do marriage. If you go to buy a car, you know what you do before you buy a car? You research it like crazy. You read everything you can about it. And then when you purchase it, you know what you do? The very first thing you do, you take out the If you're maybe like me, you take out the owner's manual and you read the owner's manual because you know the guy that designed it, the person that designed it, knows far more about it than you do, right? And to ignore it was to ensure that your car under the wear and tear of the daily stress of life it will come if you if you just ignore it it's going to come to a screeching halt and the same is true for marriage and that's why we're going to go to the designer of marriage God himself through the teachings of the old testament and the new testament and seek to give both married and unmarried people a vision for marriage according to the bible Because the Bible speaks to married people, but it also speaks quite uh, authoritatively regarding uh, singleness. So we're going to go to the Old Testament, New Testament, see what it says about marriage. And in the process, it'll help um, give shape to some of our mistaken views on marriage and deconstruct some of the misconceptions that some single people have regarding singleness. And so tonight, what I want to put before you is the most critical issue in marriage uh, in marriage and in life, and if you don't get anything else out of this series, you need to get this, because tonight's topic, tonight's and the last one, in my mind, are the two most important ones. So turn again, John chapter 4 is where we're going to be this evening, and uh, my hope, by the way, is if I don't talk too long, that we'll have a Q&A time at the end of it, um, so I'll, I'll try to talk fast, and then we can maybe get a Q&A time that won't be recorded, by the way. So um, your question doesn't have to get out there on the internet. So here's the background of John chapter 4. It's very, on, it's very early on in Jesus' ministry, okay? And Jesus is in Judea, it's in, in uh, southern Israel, and, he's got, and he uh, wants to go up north to Galilee for, um, for ministry up there. So he's in the south, he's on his way up north to Galilee, and for reasons that become clear later, Jesus senses that he's called The Spirit has called him to go through Samaria, which most uh, Jewish teachers would have avoided at all costs because the Jews considered the Samaritans uh, ethnic half-breeds and religious heretics. The Jews would only utter the word Samaritan as a curse word. And um, they were despised. The Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people, and the Samaritans, for their part, hated the Jews as well. So there was unbelievable tension between these two groups. And yet, Jesus senses that the Lord's calling him to go through Samaria, and we'll see why in a bit. And Jesus and his disciples they leave early in the morning to make this trip. It's a long trip, and they arrive in a town by the name of Sychar around noon. And they're tired, and they're hungry. And if you've ever been around men who are tired, hot, and hungry, it's quite the scene. And so Jesus sends his his disciples off to go get some food into the nearest city. And Jesus himself is tired and hot, and he sits down at the local well. And we'll pick up the story in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And so as Jesus is sitting there at this well, this Samaritan woman comes to the well to come to draw some water. Now, you probably know this if you've been uh, at TCF for a while and in the Scriptures. Historically, water drawing took place in either the early morning or at dusk to avoid the Mediterranean heat, right? Uh, Drawing water at noon would have been an unusual time for a woman to come from a village out to the well to draw water. It would have been an unusual time. But this woman, for reasons that we'll discover in a little bit, she wanted to avoid all the other women of the community. So she comes to the well when nobody else would have been, would have been there. Everybody else is taking a siesta. They're taking a break. She comes to, a, come to the well expecting this day to be just like any other day. She's there to draw water. And Jesus is there as he's about to discover or as he knows, um, as he has sensed, he's there to draw her into redemption. She's there to have her physical needs met. And Jesus is looking at this woman and says, Oh, honey, I'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind. I'm going to connect your un, your known physical needs to your unknown spiritual needs, and it's going to completely change your life. He's there to meet her right where she's at, to serve her. He's not there to judge her. He's not there to condemn her. Um, if you read some feminist material on this section, they will tell you that's what Jesus will do with his questions, that he's there to shame her. Nothing could be further from the truth, and we'll see nothing could be further from the truth by her actions at the back end of this text. He's not there to shame her, Um, because if he would have shamed her, at the very end, what we'll see happen, it would have never happened. But in the providence of the Godhead, this day is the day that the Lord has chosen to set his love upon this woman. And so she comes to the well, and Jesus says to her, the second part of verse 7 a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Remember the tension. Unbelievable tension. She can't believe she, he's asking this question. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. Hmm. And who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now she completely misses the point. She And what Jesus is doing, he's connecting her known physical needs to her spiritual needs, and she completely misses it, completely misses it. She's not connecting it at all. She says, how can you give me water? You don't even have a bucket. You got nothing to draw water with. Her eyes are still on all of her physical needs, and Jesus is going to continue. He's going to continue to draw her thoughts around her spiritual needs. And look at what he says, verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. Now imagine, this woman, she's thinking strictly on a material level. She's hearing this. She's like, well, where can I get this water? The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water (laughs) so that I will not be thirsty Or have to come here to draw water. Jesus says, whoever takes me in. Whoever takes me in and drinks deeply will never thirst again. I will quench the soul thirst that you have. He's saying, you came here to simply get water. To get water because without it you'll die. But I'm telling you, I'm the true water. I'm the true source to life. I'm the true source. And if you take me in, you'll live forever. And again, she misses it completely oblivious to what he's trying to get to. And so Jesus says, verse 16, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands And the one you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is true. (laughs) This conversation just got really awkward really, really quickly. I mean, can you imagine? Um, Go call your husband. Why does he do this? He says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have one. And he says, yeah, I know. You've had Five husbands and you're so filled with shame about it all uh, you're so filled with shame about all of this relational carnage all of this relational carnage around you that you're shacking up the guy you're shacking up with now he's not even your husband well what is this about what is jesus doing remember jesus is here to draw this woman into his love and he knows the quickest way to the human heart is through an open wound is that not true you feel deepest and you connect quickest to where there's been a wound in your life in the past. So the quickest way to the human heart is through, is through an, open wound, an open wound. And Jesus is not shaming her. He's not judging her. He's not vilifying her. He says, I know everything about your past. I know everything about your current situation, your present. I know everything about your past. I know everything about your present and I love you still. Now, you got to catch that. If there's nothing else you catch about Christ, you got to catch that. In Christ, you are fully known and fully loved. Now, think about that, because that's not really true in any other relationship we have. We do our best, almost in every type of marriage, we do our best to project an image. And we say to ourselves, we often do, we'll never verbalize it, but oftentimes we will think to ourselves, if they really knew what I was like, if they really knew what I thought if they really knew about my past if they re- if they really know how i feel about this this person would never really love me this per- person couldn't really love me and so we project an image we wear a mask some people have tried to live their entire life that way they've worn masks they've projected an image so that they can find acceptance and they can be loved. Here's the good news about Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you need to come to know Jesus. Jesus knows everything about you, everything about your past, everything about your present, including your thoughts, the thoughts that you try to hide from him. You're not fooling him with them. We sometimes think, well, I can just hide this from Jesus. No, you're not. He knows everything about it, and he loves you. He knows you fully, and he loves you completely. And he loves us too much to leave us in our brokenness. And so, like he does with this woman, he comes to us, and he opens up our past. He has to open us up in order to heal us. He's like a surgeon. He has to wound us sometimes in order to heal us. He opens up our past, the part that we've been trying to hide from everybody else, and he says, let's start there. Let's deal with this. Let the renovation project start right here. And again, he's not shaming her because of what's about to happen. Uh, go to verse 19. The woman, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to, uh, ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming. And by the way, woman is not a derogatory term. It's actually in that culture, a term of endearment. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, "I know, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, the anointed One. When he comes, he will tell us all things." And Jesus said to her, "I who speak to you am he." You've you got to wonder what he's thinking. When, when she starts this line, I know that Messiah is coming. You've got to wonder what he's thinking. Like, yeah, he's coming all right. Uh, and then he says, I who speak to you, I'm, I'm right here. And by the way, don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed it all over the place. And this is one of the things. He says, what you're hearing now, what you, who you're hearing from right now, you're hearing from the Messiah right now. Verse 27. Just then, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Uh, it was completely... He broke cultural norm here. A single man would never speak with a single woman uh, without another person there. Which, i got to tell you, as a dad of daughters, I find this to be a good rule. Um, that I think we should go back and mandate immediately, little punks. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, so they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, no one said nobody had the, the gumption. Amazingly, Peter didn't blur anything else. No one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. Now, note that the woman left her water jar. She left her water pot there. That which was previously important to her all of a sudden fades in importance. It no longer mattered. She came to the well looking to meet a, a, a felt physical need. And through this conversation with Jesus, he satisfies the spiritual need. so much so that she leaves her water jar and she goes back into her towel. Instead of bringing a, a, a pitcher of water back to town, she brings something far better. She brings a testimony about Jesus. She abandoned the bringing of water for the bringing of men. Now, by the way, do you think she would have done that if Jesus... You think she would have went back into her community and brought other people out to meet Jesus if Jesus had shamed her? If Jesus had condemned her? If Jesus had vilified her for her past? No way. There's no way she does this if she felt judged, vilified, or condemned by Jesus. And he says, no. And so she goes, verse 28... So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Amazing. All these despised Samaritans, they're all now making their way to Jesus to see if he could indeed possibly be the Messiah, all based on this woman's testimony. That's amazing. Okay, stop right there. Ask yourselves, what is Jesus doing here? Because he's doing some pretty important things. Well, what's he doing? Here's the first one. He connects. What he's doing is he's connecting, and I hinted at this, he's connecting her known physical needs to her unknown spiritual needs. He's connecting her known physical needs to her unknown spiritual needs. And this is why he had to go through Samaria. He's, he's connecting in a very real way physical needs that she understands, that she knows about, to spiritual needs that are le- untapped at this point. And I love this. He, in, he connects in very real ways, and I love it. Because sometimes we make Christianity too complicated. Um, we use jargon that nobody can ever understand. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever had somebody, somebody come to your house and, and explain something to you in jargon that you don't understand? We were building our house gosh 2007 and somebody came in and wanted to run the wires for all of the internet stuff and they started talking in language that i had no idea what the dude was saying i was like he he's talking and i'm just nodding my head just like yeah just tell me where to sign i would like to have the internet um and a lot of times we do this with christianity We use jargon that nobody understands, but that's not what Jesus does here. He uses the everyday language of physical needs, and he connects it to our spiritual needs. And he does this in other places as well. Uh, This isn't just here. You think about, um, do you guys remember the I am statements of Jesus? There's seven of them in the the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. And he says it on the heels of feeding a group of 5,000 people. And they come up to Jesus the next day and Jesus says, you come to me right now because you want your stomach filled again. But I'm telling you, I'm the bread of life. And anybody who comes to me shall never hunger. And then he says, he's saying, when you take me in, I'll satisfy your soul. Your soul hunger will be satisfied. In John chapter 7, he's echoing Isaiah 55. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says, your spiritual thirst can be quenched by by only the springs that God's provided. He says, you got to come to me. And so what Jesus does here very wisely with this Samaritan woman is he talks to her in everyday language. And he connects a known physical need, which she's seeking to meet, by the way, with a spiritual need that to this point has gone unmet. Now, Whether you know it or not, we all have four basic needs that we instinctively seek to satisfy. Every single day, we will seek to satisfy these needs. Just like this woman with the water, we will pursue satisfaction in these four ways every single day. Well, what are they? Let me give them to you. The first one Regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of where you, lo- you live, your socioeconomic class, you will seek to satisfy these four human needs. Here's the first one the first one's acceptance. Every single person craves acceptance, it's wired into you, and you seek to meet it every, day, every single day. You want to know that you're fully loved and cared for. It's the reason we work hard. We wake up every single day and we work hard to project the best image of ourselves. And if you don't, I have two teenage daughters. They wake up super early and spend a lot of time seeking to project the best image of themselves. I see them when they wake up. I see them two hours later when they come down their stairs and I'm like, you're not the same person. You're completely not the same person. It's a projection. And we all do it. We're pretending or performing every single day, projecting an an image in order for people to like us and accept us. We want to be fully known and fully loved. And Jesus says to us, just like he says to this woman, I know everything about you. I know everything about you. I know your past. I know your present. And I love you fully. I don't accept your sin. I don't accept it. But I... I know everything about you, and I love you still. And I want you to grow into who you were created to be. And every single person, each and every one of us, we crave acceptance. It's the reason why young girls who um, don't grow up with dads, or they don't feel loved by their fathers, what, are they, what will they do? They'll latch themselves to the first guy who accepts them. It's the reason why you can get young guys in college to do practically anything, even illegal things, to join a fraternity. Why? You, you watch these guys and what they have to do to join a fraternity, the stupid things that you have to do. Why do they do it? To be accepted. You can get young men who have been um, abandoned in their homes to join a gang. They have to do horrendous things. But they'll do it. Why? For acceptance, to be cared for, to be loved, for somebody to say, "I know you and I care about you and I love you." They'll do anything to be accepted. We have this desire to be fully loved and accepted. It's as real of a need as food and water, and it drives us. Here's the second one. So the first is accepted, uh, the need to be fully loved. The second one, the second need we all have, is to have a, a sense of an identity. Not only do we want to be fully loved, but we want to be fully known. We really want to be known. We want individually to be fully known and deeply and fully known. It's why social media is such a powerful thing. Because we want to be known. And even though, again, we project an image there, but we want to be fully known. It's why George Fox, several years ago, they paid a um, research group a bunch of money to find a slogan that would appeal to young people. You know what it was? You probably saw it if you were driving up and down I-5. The slogan for George Fox was, be known. Be known. Come to George Fox. Be known. By the way, I, Corbin, this is why I wore it. The Cor- no, it's not why I wore it. I was just lazy. Um, you know what we read in Psalm 139? Here's what we read. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Just as Jesus Jesus has told us, just like he's told the woman, I have known you forever. I know you've wandered. I know you've rebelled against me. But come to me in faith. I'll forgive you you are fully known and fully loved by me we have this desire to be fully known we want to be fully known fully loved here's the third need we all have we we all seek to satisfy our need for security a need for security and by the way this drives us security drives us especially once you get a little bit older if you're in your 30s i bet you you're overinsured that's not true. We have insurance on everything. We have uh, life insurance, home insurance, car insurance, umbrella insurance. We have insurance on everything. It's why we breathe a little bit easier when the stock market is up rather than down because money gives you a sense of security. It's why we drive gigantic SUVs that get 10 miles a gallon. Because we think to ourselves, it'll give us a little bit more security. Ten years ago, we were looking for a car. We lived up in north central uh, Washington. And in the wintertime, the roads were always ice and trio was driving. She would drive to and from school every day. And so we were looking for a vehicle that would do well on the road. And we found one. And I called my mechanic down here and I said, hey, Dave, we've, we found this car. What do you think about it? And he said, well, here's the deal with this. He goes, unless you get hit by a semi, you will win. And I said, okay, done. I bought the car that day based on that. Security. We all crave security. We crave it, and it drives so many of our decisions. Let me ask you, with all of your life insurance and with all of your financial resources, with all of your um, big old SUVs, with all of your guns, by the way, you come to TCF, you give anybody a hug, and you're going to feel probably three guns. Um... (laughs) which is really scary because I see some of these dudes drink their coffee in their handshake and I just think, oh, gosh, please don't shoot anywhere near me. Um, but all, are you really secure with all of those things? Are you really secure? Because 501s can shrivel up to 201s overnight. Our SUVs can't prevent, can't prevent a tragedy. We want to be fully secure, And yet, in all honesty, it's really elusive outside of Christ. You know what the Lord tells us? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can't get more secure than that. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come again for you. You can't get more secure than that. He has come to meet our fundamental needs. We want to be fully known, we want to be fully loved, we want to be fully secure. Those are the first three, here's the fourth one. We all all need, we all want to have, we have a need for purpose. We want our lives to count, even even if it's not anything more than our family. But we want our lives to count. A lot of times when I'm frustrated with work, which is about every day, I will get home and I will say, if, if all I do in my life is break generational sin in my family <laughs> and um, my daughters are, have a happy and successful life, whatever that looks like, then that's enough for me. If that's all I do. Now, if that's all it is, that's great. But there's a meaning to it. We want a reason for getting out of bed in the morning. We want to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves, even if it's just our family. Now, you may be thinking, well, I have bigger goals than that. Well, good, I'm glad. I do too. I'm just saying at the the worst case scenario, at the bottom line, if all I ever do is that, that's enough. We want to be, we, we crave to be engaged in a meaningful life. And Jesus comes and he says, oh, I've created you to bring glory to my name. I've called you and equipped you And giving you a mission of extending my grace, my name, and my influence throughout the entire world. That's unbelievable purpose that's been given to you. Now look at this. Look at these things that we all crave. We want to be fully known, fully loved, fully secure, and fully engaged. And that's true of all of us. Now those are needs that we all have. And the reality is they can only be met by God. Because what happens... If you try to have those needs met by someone else, well, what happens? Well, your security is dependent upon someone or something that you can't predict or control. If you're looking for your security to be met by someone or something, you can't predict or control uh, what they'll do and whose resources, by the way, are limited to give you the security you crave. Your identity, if you're saying, well, I'm going to get my identity from someone else, or I'm going to get my identity from something I do, your identity will be based upon another fallen human's perceptions because they can't, full, they can't fully know you. They can't fully know you. They can't know every little detail of your life and of your thoughts. Your ability to give is dependent upon your ability to get and to receive from others. And and what Jesus is doing here is saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to connect your physical needs to your spiritual needs, and you need to know that I'm the only one who can fulfill it. And that leads us to the second thing he's doing. Here's what he's doing He's identifying her main issue. And her main issue is not a relational problem. You come to this passage, you read it, and you, you think to yourself, man, she must just suck at relationships. No, it's actually not that at all, it's not a relationship problem it's a worship problem. The whole thing here is a worship problem. He says to her, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're shacked up with now, he's not even your husband. He's saying, you've sought to have your needs met by fallen and finite humans. And when they haven't been able to, when they haven't lived up to your expectations, when they haven't satisfied your needs, you've moved on. And there's a whole lot of relational carnage here. But the main issue isn't a relational problem. It's a worship problem. Because she's looked to her spouse to satisfy only what God could do. She's been looking to her spouse to meet her fundamental needs, and they can't. And this is what happens so often in our marriages. People enter into marriages thinking, well, my spouse will meet all of my fundamental needs. My spouse will fix me. Because now that I'm married, we think I won't have sexual sin. <laughs> I love that one. Um, we think they're, they're going to fix everything, and they're going to fulfill all of my, my fundamental needs, and they can't. because what you're doing, And what you're doing in that moment is you're looking for someone other than God to meet your needs. Now, what's that called? That's called idolatry. And what's idolatry? It's a form of worship. You're, you're, you, you will worship something. You will worship someone. And if you look to anyone or anything to meet your deepest fundamental needs, apart from the source and the satisfier of those needs, God himself, what you're doing in that moment is you're engaging in idolatry. Does that make sense? OK. And that happens, does it not, during the dating process? Um, we get—I don't want to say we get tricked into marriage, but we get bamboozled. Uh, <laughs> we see uh, us, our our uh, prospective spouse, and we think to ourselves, "Whoa, this is too good to be true." This is, going to, this is awesome. Um, this person is going to meet all of our needs. The yearning of my heart, all of the yearning in my heart will be satisfied. And in, and in that moment, you end up idolizing them. And you, so you end up idolizing them. And then the moment they don't meet your needs, what do we do? We go from essentially worshiping them, idolizing them, to demonizing them. And then we go to discarding them. Isn't that the case? The process is idolizing them, thinking they're going to meet all of our needs. The moment we realize, oh crap, they're not going to meet all of my needs, and I'm going to be frustrated, we end up saying, well, it's all their fault, demonizing them. And then in that moment, in America, we just say, oh, we can just discard them. We can just get a no-quick, no-problem divorce. Five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband, Jesus says. It's not a relational problem. It's a worship problem. I was reading an article a while back, and it was a a letter sent to an advice columnist. Kind of like, oh gosh, what's that lady's name? Dear Abby. Remember Dear Abby back in the day? I don't know if Dear Abby is still alive. Probably not. She was ancient when I was young. But anyways, it wasn't a Dear Abby, but it was a woman like her. And a woman wrote in, and she laments to this advice columnist that she... um, she ended her marriage. Well, why did she end her marriage? And she says, because he wasn't meeting my needs. And the advice columnist, to her credit, said, okay, well, um, will those, all of those needs be satisfied by the time you enter into your next relationship? And she said, no. And then she said, well, you probably should remain single then. And I thought, well, at least she was right on that. You see, if you enter into marriage thinking that your spouse will meet all of your fundamental needs, you're going to be quickly disappointed. Have you noticed that? Because your spouse, they weren't designed to meet your fundamental needs. And what happens if we expect them to, we'll be constantly frustrated. You will be, if you expect your spouse to meet all of your fundamental needs, you will be constantly frustrated because they're not going to live up to your heart's idolizing of them. And in the process, you'll crush your spouse you'll crush your spouse because you'll be putting a weight upon them that they were never meant to carry. It will crush your spouse. And in the process, your marriage will crumble. So both husband and wife, there will be great disappointment and great disillusionment, which means here's what it all means. The most important relationship in your marriage is not with your spouse the most important relationship in your marriage is not with your spouse. The most important relationship in your marriage is with Jesus. Now, if you're single, here's what it means. It means the most important relationship you need to develop isn't with Mr. or Mrs. Right. The most important relationship that you need to develop is your relationship with Christ. Because if you're hoping to find Mr. and Mrs. Right to meet all of your needs, then you'll constantly be searching and you'll constantly only be finding dry wells. Those needs, the needs that you crave that we all have, those four needs I gave you, the four fundamental needs, they were to draw you to the one who could actually fulfill them, the person of Christ. So the single most pressing need in your life, whether you're married or single, is to build your life upon Jesus. The most important relationship you will ever have isn't with your spouse, but it's with the Lord. And His life in you will radically alter your marriage. In your life in at least three ways. And I'll close with these. When you come to Christ and you receive his grace in life, at least three things happen to you. First, the love of Christ is bestowed upon you. Now think it through. The love of Christ is bestowed upon you, which will enable you to love your spouse with a deeper resource than yourself. Because in and of ourselves, we can only give what we can receive. We're limited on our love based upon the the love that we receive from others. But in Christ, in Christ, you're constantly sourced. You're constantly being nourished by the love of Christ, which enables you to love your spouse at a greater capacity, even when you're not receiving that love in return. Even when your spouse isn't giving you the love in return, you're able to continue to love them to the best of your ability because you're being sourced and nourished, and strengthened by the love of Christ. So what happens when you build your life upon Christ? First, the love of Christ is bestowed upon you, which actually enables you to love your spouse with a deeper source than yourself. Second, the character of Christ is formed in you. The character of Christ is formed in you. One of the beautiful things that happens when somebody comes to Christ— They give their life to Christ, and you start reading God's Word, and the Spirit begins to shape your character into Christ-likeness. Paul says it like this in Galatians 4. He says, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And then he tells us later in um, Ephesians 1 that He will continue the work in us. He will bring it to completion. So when you build your life upon Jesus, you build your life, you build your marriage upon Jesus— the character of Christ is woven into you. It's formed into you, which enables you to love your spouse, to serve your spouse without demanding anything in return. You're able to serve your spouse without demanding anything in return. Why? Well, because of the way of Christ because of the way of Christ, because of the character of Christ, has shaped you. And Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. When you build your life and your marriage upon Jesus, the character of Christ slowly is formed in you, which enables you to serve your spouse without demanding anything in return. Do you guys remember the name, um, do you know the name, Robertson McQuilkin? Anybody know that name? Anybody? No? Okay. Well, uh, Robertson the—he um, was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in Missouri from the 1960s to the early 1990s. And the college and the seminary, they were thriving under his leadership. Enrollment doubled. There was always a campus project New campus buildings being built. Two radio stations were formed during this time. He was engaged in really meaningful work. And his wife, Mariel, was every bit as talented as Robertson was. She was a sought-after professor at the college. She had a booming radio ministry. Uh, In addition, you know, being the president's wife, she always had to open up her home and give luncheons and banquets and things like that that president's wife do. one day... uh, While Muriel was in the hospital for tests on her heart, a young doctor came to McQuilkin, pulled him aside, and said, your wife has early stage Alzheimer's. And he was shocked. He had noticed that his wife had started kind of repeating stories and was having difficulty uh, with the menus of large-scale events that they would have to do, that she would have to do as a as um, a president's wife, but he hadn't really thought much of it. You know, he just kind of thought, oh, well, she's just tired. But now with the doctor's diagnosis, he says this in his book. He says, a dread began to lurk around the fringes of my consciousness. And so over the next couple of years, he tried his best to care for her and be the president of the college and the seminary. But she was becoming increasingly agitated any time that she wasn't near him, so much so that their home it was a, their home from his office was a one-mile round trip. and she would become so frustrated that she couldn't be near him all the time that she would walk it frequently. And he didn't realize it until one day at night he was taking off her shoes and her feet were bloodied and bruised, and he said, "What have you been doing?" And she said, "Well, I walked 10 times to try to get to the campus to see you today." And so at the age of 57, now think about that, eight years away from retirement age, eight years away from financial security, eight years away from the life that they had probably dreamed of together, he resigned his position. And he became her full-time caregiver at great cost to his reputation. Christianity today, at the time, said he was making a fool's decision blasted him. And the largest publication, the largest Christian publication in the world at that time, blasted him. Reputation was blasted. Financial security gave it away. He gave his life away to care for her. And for the next 25 years, he served his spouse, expecting nothing in return. You think his needs were being met? You think his physical, sexual needs were being met? What did he get in return? Nothing. But daily humiliation. He tells a story in the book. They went grocery shopping together. And uh, she started putting all of their food in another person's minivan. And he started moving it back and forth. And, you know, she was kind of losing her mind. She just started cussing at him, but blasting him. Daily humiliation. He says, daily. I got nothing in return but daily humiliation. Well, what enabled him to possibly live this way? You know what it was? It was the character of Christ over a long period of time that was formed in him and it enabled him to serve his spouse at great cost to himself. And you may be thinking to yourself, so, well, of course he's going to do it, right? He's a seminary president. He's like a professional Christian. Of course he's going to get it right. That's not true. That's not true. Um, I know many men who have, lo- who have served their wife to the very end at great cost to themselves. All the way to the very end. I was thinking this morning, um, my wife's grandfather, Jay, His sweet wife, Pat, had a stroke years and years ago. She's are both with the Lord now. But he served her needs for years without having his needs met. And McQuilkin, in his book, he, he quotes an oncologist who lives constantly with death. And he says, almost all women stand by their men when they're facing death. He says, very few men stand by their women when it gets really hard. What enables these men, what enabled Jay, what enabled Larry, what enabled Carl Christian, what enabled Mark Murray, what enabled them to stand by their wife all the way to the very end? You know what it is? It's the character of Christ formed in them. And you can say, I can serve my spouse at great cost to myself, even if it's not reciprocated because my Savior has served me at great cost to myself. He has served me at great cost to himself. He knew that he was going to give his life away in order to serve me. And now under his power, by the work of the Holy Spirit in me, I can do the same. I can serve my spouse all the way to the end. It's an amazing thing. Here's the last one. When you build your life upon Christ, your life and your marriage upon Christ, the mission of Christ is entrusted to you. The mission. Of you, we're, we seek meaning. And Jesus says, you want meaning? I got meaning for you. The mission of Christ is entrusted in you. The mission of Christ to bring honor and glory to the name of Christ, to spread His life and His grace to as many people as possible, is entrusted to you. And that enables you. It enables you and enables your spouse to have a common vision, a common mission, a common purpose for your life. That together as a couple, you can say, this is where we're going as a couple. The gospel gives you a vision for marriage marriage and life that enables husband and wife or a single person to pour their life into meaningful work, work that will spread the name of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible. And this gives your life and it gives your marriage incredible purpose right now. You see how important this is? How important it is to build your life upon Jesus? And if you do build your life upon Jesus, and if you're called to marriage, and if your spouse builds their life upon Jesus, and now you're in it together, you have all of the deep resources you need for your marriage to flourish And to reveal the nature of the gospel, which is utter selflessness to the very end. The nature of the gospel is selflessness. And you reveal that in your marriage. This is why why the most critical issue in your life and marriage is to be in a growing relationship with Jesus. So if you haven't come to Christ, come to the one who knows you and loves you fully, who by his death has secured your forgiveness who by his resurrection has secured your eternal life, now and forevermore. The most critical part, most critical thing is for you to walk out of here in a relationship with Jesus and to let his life and his love shape your life and your marriage. Amen.